The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Reverend Jim Wallace. Reverend Wallace is a globally respected writer, teacher, preacher, and justice advocate. He is a regular international commentator on ethics and public life. He is a New York Times bestselling author of 12 books, including Christ in Crisis, America's Original Sin, God's Politics, and The Great Awakening. Reverend Wallace is also the founder of Sojourners, an independent online magazine of faith, culture, and politics. He served on President Obama's White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships and has taught faith and public life courses at both Harvard and Georgetown University. As you may know, if you have been listening to the show for a while, we, every once in a while, have a faith leader on to just kind of give us a pause in the midst of all of the very practical advice that we get and talk a little bit more about the spiritual issues around activism. Today is certainly one of those conversations, and I was both privileged to speak with Reverend Wallace, as well as personally quite affected. Before we start, if you would be so kind as to go to whatever podcast player you are listening to this on and rate and review the show. Doing that is not only very kind, but also helps people find the new activist and hear important conversations like the one that you are about to hear between me and Reverend Jim Wallace. I know that there are a lot of folks listening who are kind of in that 20 to 30 age range, figuring out kind of how they are going to use all of the energy that they have to best serve the world. And I know that in your history, you've been arrested dozens of times for civil disobedience. You have spoken bravely and continue to against issues of the day. Um, and in all of that, you have remained a person of deep Christian faith. And so... I'm questioning from those early days of civil disobedience, what did you learn in that time about yourself? Well, thanks, Eddie. Appreciate the question. Let me go back to when I was the age or even a bit younger than some of your listeners. I was raised in a very committed evangelical church in Detroit, Michigan. My parents actually started it. But in my Mid to late teens, I began to listen to my city of Detroit. I began to read the newspapers and hear the news and have conversations. And I realized that something very big was very wrong. And uh, when I would ask questions about it, uh, nobody would want to answer the questions in my white church, my white school, in my white neighborhood. How come we live the way we do in white Detroit, yet from what I'm hearing and reading, life in black Detroit is so different than ours? And I hear there are black churches, and how come we've never had any relationship or even heard about them? And so I tell young people all the time, trust your questions and follow them. 
to where, wherever they lead you. So I wasn't getting answers to my questions in my white Christian world. So I decided to go into the city, as we called it in those days, the inner city, we said, to take jobs there and to go and find black churches, which I did. And all of a sudden, my whole world opened up. And um, I remember I had a job alongside a young man who was, we were both janitors in a downtown office building. I would save money for college, and he was supporting his family. And uh, he took me home one night for dinner to meet his family. His father had passed, his mother was still alive, and his siblings. So I got to meet them, and she was a mom like mine. She wasn't political or militant. She was just a mom who cared about her kids. And she told me, we got talking about the Detroit police, which was a big issue in those days and still is today. And she said, so I tell my kids, if you're ever lost and can't find your way home and you, and you see a policeman duck under a, you know, a stairwell or hide behind a building and wait till he passes and then come out and find your way home. When I heard that, I heard my mom's words echo in my head to her five kids, which would have been, if you're lost and can't find your way home, look for a policeman. The policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand and he'll bring you home. That was what we call an epiphany, uh, a life experience, a faith experience for me as a young kid. And I've had those ever since. Uh, I've learned most about the world when I'm in places that I was never supposed to be or with people I was never supposed to meet or listen to or become friends with. That's always what was changing in my life, changed my life uh, time and time again. So I remember I came home from one of those days or evenings in the city and an elder in my church took me aside and he said, now son, you have to understand Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. And our faith is personal. Racism is political, and our faith is personal. And, you know, that's the night that I left in my head and my heart of that early Christian faith I was raised with. Because if this issue that was really tearing me up inside, I was learning about every day in my city, this issue of black and white if it had nothing to do with my faith, then I wanted nothing to do with my faith either. <laughs> so I left and I got involved in the civil rights movement and the student movements of my time. And I didn't have words to go around that conversation back then, but I do now, which are these. God is personal. God is personal, but never private. Never private. And so the rest of my life has been trying to apply my personal faith to public life. Uh, if faith is deeply personal, but if it doesn't apply to public life, we're not being faithful to the gospel. And so uh, I got involved in all the movements of my time and the, the passage, the text that brought me back to, to Christ. My Christian faith, which you asked me about, is was Matthew the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus, it was, I call it the it was me text. Jesus says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. 
I was naked. I was sick. I was a stranger. Stranger there means immigrant. That's what the word means in Greek. I was in prison and you weren't there for me. Lord, when do we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, stranger, or in prison? And he says, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. That was the most radical thing I've ever heard. More radical than Karl Marx and Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh, which I was reading in college, like we all were in those days, and I came back to my faith. And the test of our faith, uh, Jesus says, is... um, how we treat the least of these, the ones he calls the least of these. Uh, uh, International Justice Mission deals with those people all the time, all over the world. They are the test of our faith. So we're going to be the ones who either respond to this test of discipleship Jesus gives us or not. And the privatizing of our faith, like my church was doing in those days, made them ignore, ignore racism ignore poverty, ignore war. And I couldn't do that as a young person. So that's what got me in this movement ever since. And civil disobedience, yeah, I've I've been arrested for nonviolent civil disobedience uh, in the tradition of one of my mentors, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was arrested 30 times in his life uh, for putting his faith ahead of of what the law was saying and doing. Uh, and sometimes that's required of us, but mostly it's just living a life that is active and engaging and is applying the gospel to the times in which we live. And that's what I see a whole new generation is doing. My, my two boys are in the category of your listeners here, one's 18, one's 21, and that's what they're doing. They're trying to put their faith into action uh, for justice. How have you seen the church progress because the story you just told which thank you for that but part of that was you were disillusioned that the church of your upbringing was saying that racism is not a matter really for the church to be taking up right and they are of course speaking for that particular church and that denomination but in some ways decades later there are some that are still saying that that are still saying like where is the church where is the church when it comes to you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Why are they not on the forefront? And so I realize that's a generalization to just put it all under the umbrella of the church. But as you see people who resonate with your early disillusionment of the church, how do you respond to them if they are still feeling disillusioned decades later? Well, you're right. It isn't the whole church. It's the white church (laughs) and too much of the white church. Uh, When I went into the city in Detroit, I went to black churches and I got wonderfully taken in by those black Christians who answered so many of my questions. Uh, And I met a church for the first time that was very holistic in the gospel, uh, that bringing people to Christ included standing with the poor and vulnerable for the sake of justice. And and Jesus' opening statement is what I call his Nazareth Manifesto in Luke, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And the word good news there in Greek is evangel, from which we get the word evangelism and evangelical. And white evangelical Christians, to be honest, are not known in our day, in our time, for bringing good news to the poor, but Jesus is there saying, if your gospel isn't good news to the poor, it's simply not 
my gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to me, this is a faith question, not a partisan question or a political question. And really, the brand of white Christianity is embarrassing to the gospel. It's time for a new generation to change the brand and go back to the brand of Jesus and not the brand of, particularly of white American evangelicals. Uh, Black and Hispanic evangelicals have a very different view than white evangelicals do. The people I work with all the time in black and brown churches, the leaders there, they've got the gospel right. And so when Black Lives Matter rises up, uh, black churches, uh, black pastors, and a lot of us alongside are the ones who have been supporting those young people in Ferguson. I was there in Ferguson when all of that occurred. And I think it's, it's a whole new world now where a new generation of white Christians is joining together with a generation of black and brown Christian leaders who are going to take the church to a new place, a different place. In fact, the place where most of the church is already at around the world, the body of Christ globally is the most diverse human community on the planet. That's where we are around the world. But in the American context, we're still way far behind. And that's what I think a new generation of, uh, you know, Jesus-based activists could really change. So as the 22-year-old who is listening and wants to, has all of this energy that they are trying to figure out what to do with. There is both maybe hope in the future of the church, they are disillusioned with the church maybe as it is now, and they are wanting to go onto the streets and protest. As someone who has done this and who has uh, you know, been a part of civil disobedience, like you said, has followed in the footsteps of Dr. King, I'm curious, what advice would you give to that 22-year-old who is in the midst of trying to figure it out and does not have it all worked out yet, but is trying desperately to figure out where that energy can be pointed in service of the world. What changes the world always are social movements. (laughs) And uh, most of the social movements in this country that have changed things have had people of faith at the center of them. Not the only ones there. It shouldn't ever just be us, but as an activating core, uh, the abolitionist struggle, the early feminist struggles, the, certainly the civil rights movement that wouldn't have existed without the black churches at the core. But also movements are both inside and outside. They're, they're protest, uh, they're sometimes in the streets and sometimes nonviolent civil disobedience, but they're also inside, inside the quarters of power making a difference. We just had this the most uh, significant bill in decades uh, aimed at ending poverty. Uh, The COVID rescue plan, uh, very popular around the country, literally will cut child poverty in half, which ought to be a measure for people of faith as to what's important. So I think I'm seeing, and my boys, uh, one of the silver linings of COVID is both my boys are our home, one's just graduated, one's just going to college. And every night at dinner, we, we talk about how to refound this country again. A good friend of mine, the chair of African American Studies at Princeton University, Eddie Glaude, 
uh, has written a book about James Baldwin called To Begin Again. And it, he calls for a third founding, a refounding of this country where COVID has revealed, the pandemic has revealed our tremendous inequities racially and economically. It's, it's demonstrated, verified what many of us have been saying about how inequitable this nation is. And it talks about refounding the nation again. So every night at dinner, we talk about refounding the criminal justice system or our policing system or our uh, healthcare system or educational system. And I love to be in conversations with a new generation about how we have to refound uh, our systems in this nation to be more consistent with the gospel uh, and with what we say we believe is followers of Jesus. So it's both inside and outside uh, that we have to build a movement for change. And I think it, it really shows that a new generation will listen to the things that Jesus said, uh, will listen to what the Bible says. The Bible has 2,000 verses, the Bible, 2,000 verses about the poor and the oppressed. Uh, and our Bibles uh, in white Christian America have basically, their Bible's full of holes. We've taken all that out of the Bible, cut it all out, literally, which we did in seminary once when we first started. We cut out of the Bible every reference to the poor, 2,000 we found. And uh, putting that Bible back together again is what a new generation of Christian activists are doing. So it's working inside and outside systems. Movements are always that dance, inside and outside. King had a movement on the outside, but he worked on the inside. Lyndon Johnson, as, as we we're just talking today, is the anniversary of his speech where he, he said, we shall overcome for voting rights. Voting rights. If voting rights aren't an issue, <laughs> when people are trying to, to literally suppress the number of black voters, that's a faith issue. It's an image of God issue. Genesis first book in the Bible, first chapter, that God created us, all of us, all human beings in God's image and likeness. So voting rights is an Imago Dei issue, an image of God issue, not a partisan issue. And we're going to be tested in our faith by how we respond to those kinds of issues. Now, I talk with enough young people all the time at home and all around the kind of country, which gives me a lot of hope in the new generation rising up. But this just can't be uh, a time in your lives, uh, an activist time, a young, t this is how we should define our vocations. I, I teach at Georgetown and lots of other places. And I talk about the difference in career and vocation. Career is just adding up your assets and getting a job at a higher level. Vocation is what you're called to and where your gift, your deepest gifts uh, meet the crying needs of the world. That's your vocation right there. So I talk to a lot of young people all the time about how their vocations must reshape the world in which we're living. And that's, in fact, what will uh, bring people back to looking at Jesus all over again. Talk about this refounding. It speaks to the buzzword of the day, which is that these actually are unprecedented times. You almost can't say unprecedented anymore without people rolling their eyes. But but you have lived through 
a number of times that in the time people would say is unprecedented, like the civil rights movement, like uh, the Vietnam War. I'm curious from your view, are we actually in an unprecedented time? And are we actually in the midst of what could be that refounding moment? I actually think we are. And I've not always felt that way every decade of my life. It's often been an uphill battle, uphill uh, grind, as my voice would say sometimes. Uh, but now I think this is a moment because the pandemic itself has revealed things about our society. COVID has revealed who we are, exposed those inequities. And then when George Floyd was killed, it has created a reckoning that is multiracial and multi-generational, but young people especially. And I think there's a moment here to rethink, uh, to re redo, to re-examine and reimagine all of our systems. And that's what I see a new generation of people doing, not just in reaction against old failures, but really going forward now, a new generation that is committed to both a multiracial uh, democracy for the first time in this country, a genuine multiracial democracy undergirded by a new community, what Dr. King called the beloved community that crosses all of our racial boundaries and exists for the sake of the, the world outside. And so I, I really think that we're at a place now that I'm feeling more hope than I have for a long time if we decide to act on the changes we say we believe in. We need uh, a different policing system, uh, uh, a better way to create public safety. We need to reimagine our criminal justice system uh, for teachers, our educational system for healthcare. And so really the future of the church is at stake because if young people don't stand on the side of these changes, a lot of folks in their generation are not even ever going back to church. I mean, I got to say that most of my son's friends are not Christian. They don't go to church. And they know that, in fact, following Christ in the way that really encounters and serves and protects the least of these, as Jesus talked about, it's not just for the sake of social change, it's for the integrity of the churches. If white Christians don't stand behind and alongside and follow the leadership of black and brown Christians in our time, there really won't be a future for the white churches in this nation. And a whole generation is just not going to show up. Young people want to see courage. They want to see risk-taking. They want to see people doing what they say they believe. I love your, your um, title, the, the New Activist, uh, particularly among white Christians. There needs to be a whole new generation of new activists who stand with their brothers and sisters in Christ across racial lines and those who are outside the churches where we're doing, uh, we're doing vaccination work with, with Muslims and Jews and particularly Christians and churches who are in places where people are hard to reach with vaccinations. And so we're going to be showing how we can vaccinate uh, people who are who are uh, left out and left behind at houses of worship. That's sending a clear message to to those in the country who want to see Christians standing up for what they say they believe. 
there are people listening that I know are people that are not of faith or uh, or are disillusioned at best, maybe, um, with the church. And so when you say, well, they won't, they just won't go back to the church. What's at stake if that's the case? What happens if they don't go back to the church? Why does that matter? Well, uh, lots at stake. I want young people to, when they walk past houses of worship, mostly they're not saying, I wonder what they're doing in there. I wonder what they believe. They often don't care. What they're looking for is who's active in the community. So I want them to say, you know, I don't know what those people believe or what, but I know that's the place where we all gather in this community to solve our problems. <laughs> and I see that again and again. I see churches and cities that have become gathering places for a community trying to solve its problems. And that's what will draw people, I think, uh, back to faith if they see people of faith who are not just first telling them what they believe, but showing them what they believe by how they act in their communities, uh, in their country, and in the world. That's what will really show people what it means to follow Jesus, not just telling them how wrong they are, but what it means to follow Jesus, who says, I'll know how much you love me, but how you treat those whom he calls the least of these. That's how, that'll be the test of how much you love me by how you treat them. And I think that's going to be uh, transformational in the church's life. And it's also happening in in Islam, young Islamic leaders, I mean, young Jewish leaders. But it'll also be transforming in our neighborhoods, our communities, and our world. And so I, I think we're at a moment where, as you say, a lot is at stake right now, not just for these issues, but for really the future of faith in this country. And I think that is important. For, for me, it's important that people know what we mean when we say that we're people of faith, and particularly those of us of my faith, that we're followers of Jesus. In the introduction to the show, I kind of gave the mission statement of what Sojourners is and the fact that you are uh, the founder of Sojourners. I'm curious, as you have seen this community and then organization progress, what has been realized in you about the, the power of this collected group? Well, it's um, uh, Sojourners has been a magazine, uh, now digital as well, but also a movement, uh, a network of people here and around the world. It's at sojo.net, S-O-J-O.net. I was the founder. Adam Taylor is the president now. He's a new generation that I think we needed to take us into the future. I'm gonna. I'm still founder and ambassador, and I'm creating a new center at Georgetown University particularly with students in mind, uh, of how we can take this forward now, how on issues like voting rights, on immigration reform, on changing our criminal justice system, on transforming our education, that this is the moment to put into practice the things that we've been saying now for 50 years at Sojourners, and a new generation is doing that. And so let me conclude by saying it's a matter of where people get their hope from. <laughs> and uh, I was involved in the whole struggle against apartheid in South Africa for many years. And I saw a whole country just change 
And my mentor, Desmond Tutu, used to teach me how the difference between optimism and hope. Sometimes we don't feel optimistic given what's happening all around us. But hope is deeper than optimism. Hope is, Hebrew says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It means hope is believing that change is possible. And then as Desmond used to say, betting your life on it. So my best paraphrase of that Hebrews text is, hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. That's what activists of faith always contribute. We're the ones who act on the basis of what we believe is possible, that God is doing and God will do through us. And the courage to act on that belief is what makes hope possible, and movements can't survive without that hope. So that's what I think we can most bring to social movements, the presence and the power and the promise of hope. What is your hope for the future of Sojourners? As you, like as you said, Reverend Adam Russell Taylor has assumed the duties of president. There was a long and planned and healthy, it seems, at least from an outsider's perspective, succession plan. But what is your hope then for that organization as it moves forward under under new leadership? Well, I'm actually very, very hopeful. Adam, I've known for 20 years, he was in my first course I taught in faith and politics at the Kennedy School at Harvard University, and he's been involved with us ever since. And I see a network growing that is indeed more and more multiracial, multicultural, and is going to help, um, I think, pave the way or, or open up the prospects or help navigate this nation toward becoming a no longer uh, white majority nation. We're becoming a nation where the majority will be all minorities. And so how do we navigate that few future? I hope Sojourners and other faith-based networks can do that. And in Georgetown, where I'll be uh, teaching and starting a whole new center, we're even going to call it the Matthew 25 Center for Faith, Justice, and the Common Good, <laughs> with students coming from all over the country, the convening around voting rights, around around uh, uh, transforming our policing, around around uh, welcoming a new uh, new nation to become uh, our nation. I, I think Sojourners will continue to do that work and will become broader and deeper in the expression of that. So I'm very hopeful about movements and, and between Sojourners going forward with that network and movement and the center at Georgetown, I'm hoping to build to be supportive of Sojourners, but all kinds of faith-based organizations around the world. I really think we, we can be a welcoming place for the new kind of activism that is deeply faith-rooted and really wants to to put our faith into action, uh, to actually say what we do and walk what we talk and be what we preach. That's the future of faith in this country and around the world, and that's what can change things, I think, for ourselves as a nation going forward. But we need that new generation to step up and act on their faith. The title of the show, as you mentioned earlier, is The New Activist. And we named it that in a way because activist is a intentionally loaded word that people have to take time to define what it means to them. I'm curious um, how you would define 
an activist? Well, as I, at the beginning of our conversation, uh, Eddie, I talked about my experience growing up in a, in a family where faith meant a great deal. It was the most important thing in our, our lives, our conversations, our, our dinner talks. <laughs> uh, we were at church all the time in those days. Um, and yet we weren't acting on our faith in relationship to the most important issues of our time. We were fighting over uh, very legalistic issues of whether Christians should go to movies back in those days. Uh, And yet racism was all around us, and we had nothing to say about that. That's what's changing now. Uh, For example, right now we we have a big, clear movement to restrict voting rights, to push back uh, voters who are black and brown and young. Uh, 250 new laws have been passed just since the, uh, the election to try and restrict voting rights. It's a new Jim Crow. Jim Crow when, when black voters were restricted by all kinds of things. It's not Jim Crow too. And so this is a test of faith. I want to see if particularly white Christians are going to stand up to Jim Crow too when they didn't back in in the time of my church growing up to Jim, Jim Crow one, we didn't stand up. Now I think there's a chance that we can stand end up. So activism just means putting your faith into action. Don't just tell people what you believe, but show them what you believe by your courage and willingness even to take risk uh, on behalf of faith. That's what a lot of young people are doing all over the country. They're taking risks. And that's what they're asking us to do, who are church leaders or uh, people who are in churches, clergy and lay people. Uh, it's time to, to act. It's time to show what we mean. Uh, faith without works, James said, is dead. And uh, to be honest, white Christian faith in this nation has been dead for a long time. When it comes to the work that puts faith into action, for justice. And a new activist now, a new movement rising up, wants to make sure that we are we are doing what we say we believe and putting our faith into action. And for that, I am right now, uh, as we talked today, very hopeful. So all those young new activists out there who are the generation of my boys, uh, we're depending on you. We're, we're going to lean on your leadership And we're going to look forward to the day when people will know what we believe by the things that we say and the things that we do in our own communities, in our nation, in the world. It's time to put our faith into action. Reverend Wallace, thank you. I so appreciate you taking time with us this morning on the show and just allowing us the the privilege of this conversation. Thank you. My blessing, and I want, hope to stay in touch with all those new activists, young activists all over the place, and we want to be as supportive as we possibly can. Well, my deepest thanks to Reverend Wallace, as well as the staff at Sojourners for making this conversation happen today. And my thanks to you for listening to The New Activist and continuing to engage in these important conversations. If you have any thoughts, things you want to chat about, 
questions, comments for the activist community, we are on social media. Both Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all have the same handles. New Activist is, it's all one word, New Activist is. And the website is newactivist.is, like the New Activist is you. That's the that's the idea, newactivist.is. A huge thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His music, merch, coffee, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. And he is on Twitter at prophiphop. Make sure to thank him for scoring the New Activist. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Reverend Wallace, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Mm-hmm.